after these things, uh, so last week Abraham like rescued uh, his nephew and fought this big battle, and he's in a kind of nervous place. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray and we'll dive into this. Lord God, we pray that you would speak to us tonight. Uh, You spoke to Abram according to your word long ago. We pray that you would speak again to us uh, and that you would give us faith, um, a faith that might even be somewhat like his. We pray this in your name. Amen. So my children, I have four kids. Uh, They're ages 12, 10, 8, and 5. I should probably learn their names. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, They've been obsessed with the movie The Greatest Showman, or as they call it, The Greatest Showman. Uh, for the last uh, like year and a half or so, they watch it. We've watched it over and over again. We listen to the soundtrack all the time. And if you haven't seen it, it's great. It's worth seeing maybe not 20 times, but it's worth seeing a couple of times. And um, it's a story about P.T. Barnum and uh, the foundation of Barnum and Bailey Circus, the greatest show on earth, which shut down about a year ago. Like the circus is over. Like I feel so bad for everybody in the future. The circus is no more. Uh, but a few years ago, uh, we had the opportunity to go see Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus in Richmond. They came to the Coliseum there, and we got tickets. Uh, my in-laws treated us to it, and we got to watch this incredible show. And I was uh, taken aback by so many things. It's like total overstimulation. Like all these amazing things are happening, and at the same time, people are like looking at their phone, you know. And I'm like, what is wrong with us? Like this, these amazing uh, feats of strength and. Uh, spectacular uh, acrobatics and gymnastics are happening, but the sort of the highlight, the peak of the show, uh, was part of the high wire act. And where our seats happened to be, it was right in front of us. And uh, these people are, you know, walking out over this high wire. And uh, the main guy, uh, he had been doing like a high wire act with a blindfold on, and we're kind of like in awe of him. He's like up above us, you know, like a hundred feet above the ground. And at one point, four different high wire actors went out onto the high wire and they had this moment that they called now get ready for the leap of faith they call it the leap of faith and here's this guy who's been wearing a blindfold comes out on the high wire and he jumps over four people and lands on the other side of them on a high wire a hundred feet above the ground and then he slipped and fell to his death in front of me and my kids. Totally kidding. He did not fall. He stuck the landing. And by the way, they had one of those, they had one of those huge, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Why would he lie about that? Uh, no. So, yeah. And they had one of those, like, big bounce house mattresses, you know, underneath. Like, the circus has gotten really soft uh, since uh, P.T. P. T. Barnum was rolling over in his grave. Um, but it was this amazing thing, and they called it, I loved it, it was like the leap of faith. 
Um, and here we see Abram making the leap of faith. And we talk about this a lot. You know, you're going to make this leap of faith. You've got to trust in God. Take the leap of faith. Step out into this. And so I want to look at that um, a little bit in this passage. And Abram, he begins, he's just come from a big battle. Uh, he won, but, you know, sure, surely he's a little shaken up. And he's full of fear. And God says to him, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I am with you. I am for you. And gives him a promise. Um, and all along, if you've been following the story, Abram has been promised that his offspring are going to be a blessing to the whole world. At this point, he doesn't have any kids. He and his wife, Sarah, are old. They have no children. She is barren. They don't have children, and God's promise hasn't come true. And then God says, come and look at the stars. You know, take a look. We're going to go on a walk. We're going to look at the night sky. And he says, your offspring are going to be like the stars of heaven, if you can count them. And this amazing verse in verse 6, it says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him or could be translated credited to him as righteousness. He has faith. He believes. He takes the leap of faith. He believes God. What is faith? Uh, Faith is more than assent. Um, It's it's really trusting and believing in something. Uh, When you walked in tonight, you um, believed that the chair that you're sitting in now would hold you up. But you had faith when you actually sat down on it. Like all of you are in, in a small sense are living in faith. You are living by faith right now. You're sitting on a chair and you're trusting that's going to hold you up. It's not going to collapse under you. Um, you didn't bring in a scientist to like do a pressure test. You didn't like calculate it. You looked at it. You said that seems good. And you sat down and you're, you're having faith in your chair. And... Uh, the Christian faith is not that different from that. Like a lot of times we think it's something that we just believe cognitively, but it's more than that. Like you could believe that the chair would hold you up, but if you never actually sat down in it, that wouldn't be faith. You could believe the things about God, but if you don't actually put your trust in him, um, that's, that's a different matter. And so full trust, faith in the biblical sense, is this full intellectual, emotional, and relational commitment uh, to receive uh, and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation in a Christian sense. Receive and rest on him, to lean on him fully. Uh, and in the, the New Testament picks up this verse, and Paul uses it, the Apostle Paul, to talk about this idea of being justified through faith or by faith. Uh, Romans 4, which we got on the next slide, uh, Paul quotes this in Romans, and he says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him, as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he's saying, like, if you worked for your salvation, it's not a gift. You, like, you earned it. But he's saying the Christian faith is different. To the one who does not work, I didn't earn it, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or credited as righteousness. So here's this idea that that, that in the Christian gospel, there's this idea, the good news of Christianity, the good news of the Bible, is this idea that when we believe in God, that that faith is this thing through which the righteousness, the perfect obedience, the Old Testament commentator who is a Jewish commentator named Robert Alter, he's a professor out at Berkeley, he actually has his own translation of the book of Genesis, and he translates the word righteousness here as merit. 
He's saying the merit of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the good works of Jesus are credited to Abraham through faith. It's just an amazing concept. It's a deep theological thing. We should get coffee and talk about it more. But verse 6, again, this amazing statement, this quintessential moment of faith where Abraham believes he actually trusts in God even though he doesn't have kids and all these promises God has made to him have no inkling of coming true. Um, He believes. He has faith. And the New Testament quotes it three times. It points back to this little moment in 15 verse 6 as like the gold standard of what it looks like in the Bible to have faith. Abraham believes God. Let's look at the next two verses. Genesis 15, 7. And God said to him, he goes on, he's made a promise before that he'll have offspring and that he'll inherit a land. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know? So here we have the the leap of faith, and the New Testament actually calls faith a gift. We have this, the, the big standard of faith. And then two verses later, Abram says, how do I know? Our first point is the leap of faith. Second is the reality of doubt. The reality of doubt. Abraham, the man of faith that the New Testament points to over and over again, is this man of faith. At the very moment of faith, a verse later shows doubt. It's the reality of doubt. Uh, Do you have doubts? If you're a Christian, do you have some doubts? If you're exploring Christianity, do you kind of... Like Be like, you know, I, some of this makes sense, but I've got some unanswered questions here, and I kind of want to figure it out. Um, there's two extremes we can go to uh, with our doubts, with our questions about God and Christianity. Um, the first extreme is no doubts allowed, like no doubts here. And I think that this is something that if you were raised in the church, even if it was never explicitly stated, it's just sort of in the water. It's just sort of in the environment that like you're not supposed to ask those kind of probing questions. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you're not supposed to like raise your hand and be like, but how do we know that? You know, like, how do we really know this is true? Um, It's just sort of there. Uh, You guys know who Ricky Gervais is? The creator of The Office, right? He's a British comedian, actor. He's been in tons of stuff. Uh, I love him. One of my goals in life is to make Ricky Gervais laugh. Like, if I could just be, like, when he starts laughing, like, everyone starts laughing. You just can't help... But laugh, he's just really, uh, uh, I love him. Uh, and I, I just want to be in a room, and I just want to say something that makes him laugh, and then I'll be like, I've, you know, God can take me uh, at that moment. Um, but he's a very uh, outspoken atheist. Uh, he's very public about his atheism. And he, I've actually heard an interview where he told the story of how he became an atheist. Uh, he was nine years old, and his mother had been taking him to church, and he had come home from Sunday school, and was talking about what he had learned at church with his mother. And his older brother, who was like 18 years old, a good bit older than him, comes in and overhears what they're talking about and starts raising objections to what they're talking about. He's questioning it. He's antagonizing his mom and his little brother about the Christian faith that they're talking about. And he said that his mom immediately was like, shh, 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 don't talk about that. Like, shut up, not in front of Ricky. Don't say that. 
Don't say these things. And he said he intuitively realized at that moment that she didn't want him to hear the questions. She didn't want him to hear the objections. And he realized she's afraid of the questions. Therefore, she doesn't actually believe this is really true. And he said at that moment he became an atheist. He's been an atheist ever since. I'm sure he's read some books. Like he's a grown man. Like he's, he's probably thought about it a little bit more since he was nine, but that was the moment. And so it's sort of the irony of the no doubts allowed thing is it has this posture of great faith. Like I have such a strong faith, I'm not even going to listen to the questions. I'm not even going to entertain the ideas. But actually what Ricky picked up on as a nine-year-old is that that posture of solid faith is actually a mask for tremendous doubt, (coughs) tremendous unbelief, tremendous fear that maybe the Christian faith, maybe God doesn't really stand up to hard questions. Um, And the irony of that is if you're raised in the church and you feel that in the water, you end up feeling fear and shame and isolation about your honest questions about the faith, which drives you into yourself and allows that doubt to fester and to grow into unbelief. So it's this amazingly counterproductive thing. And we don't want to do that here. We don't want RUF to be that way. I don't want the church to be that way. I don't want Christians in general to be no doubts allowed. Why? Because the Bible is not no doubts allowed. The Bible is not, no doubts allowed, so neither should we be. Uh, Romans chapter 4, which we quoted part of it before, Paul later goes on to say that Abraham did not waver in his faith. He says he was unwavering in his faith. The ultimate faith passage in the Bible, and immediately in it, Abraham expresses doubt. He's asking, how do I know? Unwavering faith, therefore, according to the Bible, is a faith... That's, that asks questions. A faith that wrestles with our doubts. It's a faith that asks, how do I know? So that's one extreme, no doubts allowed. The other extreme is to doubt everything. To adopt a posture of radical uh, and total skepticism. To question it all. And so th- this is the point where you're saying, the burden of proof, you familiar with that term? In order to decide what's true or not, the burden of proof is on Christianity, God, etc., but it's not on my unbelief. I don't have the burden of proof, um, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. I'm not advocating for that. I'm, well, by saying, like, ask your questions, bring out your doubts, talk about it, I am not saying uh, that we should be radically skeptical. Uh, the Bible, I'm going to use different terminology than sometimes the Bible uses, but I'm going to differentiate between the idea of doubt and unbelief. Doubt versus unbelief. And so unbelief being this posture towards God that is uh, turning our back on him. Uh, I'm not saying that we say to each other, hey, you know what, maybe, maybe not. Turn your back on the creator of the universe, the one who had made you and put breath in your lungs and made you in his own image, who sustains you by the very power of his will in this very moment, who suffered and died and rose again for you. Just for the sake of the argument, let's betray him and turn towards something, you know, like... That's not what I'm talking about. That, and that's more than like, I'm just being honest about some questions that I have. There's a real call in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, to believe. Like God consistently speaks to human beings and says, you should believe in me. I'm here and I'm available. Put your trust in me. If you remember the story from the early chapters of Mark where the, the storm is raging and then Jesus stills the sea 
And the disciples are all freaked out. And he says, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of, anybody know it? Little faith. Oh, you have little faith. He's correcting them for not believing in him. Um, there's another amazing passage later in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9 where there's a man whose son is suffering and he says, you know, if it's possible, can you do something, Jesus? And Jesus says, you know, if you believe. And the man turns to him and he says, I believe, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a doubting faith, right? It's faith, but he's saying, I I have a lot of unbelief still. Will you help me with it? Um, So he's going towards Jesus with it. Which, you might object to that if you're uh, a skeptic, but here's the thing. If God is a person, then that actually makes sense. That dynamic of saying, I've got my questions, but I'm turning towards you with them. If, if God is a person with whom we are called to be in relationship, that makes sense. I'll give you an example. Uh, I have a five-year-old daughter. Her name is Phoebe. If you went to Phoebe and you said, does your dad really love you? Like, how do you really know that? And they were like, I mean, look at it. And like, he's, he leaves you for like 50 hours a week to go to work. <laughs> Have you seen where he went? Like, do you even know where he's going? And then you could say like, I saw him today and he was having coffee with what you call RUF friends. <laughs> you know, he's like sitting with an RUF friend drinking coffee and having lunch yucking it up, talking about their mom or their questions. You know, I saw him in Starbucks reading his Bible and typing on a computer, writing a sermon. Like, it looks like your dad is just, like, chilling out of the coffee shop and on a play date with his buddies. Um, how, do you, how do you really know that he loves you? He, I saw him playing the guitar. Like, he's just on, he's just, like, he's left you. He'd rather be with them than with you. Like, if she adopted that skepticism, like, that's a pretty reasonable argument from her perspective, right? You'd be like, wait, what, what, what is going on here? I don't have all the information. Like, what's dad doing? Some of you are like, that sounds like a great job. How do I, how do I become, <laughs> how do I get Ben's job? Um, uh, it, you can hear, and yet, of course, like, on the one hand, it seems like it would be rational, but on the other hand, it would be utterly irrational for my daughter to be like, yeah, dad's the worst. Like, he does not love me. There's an intuitive relational connection where if she were to turn to me and say, like, I heard you were having coffee with RUF friends instead of being with me, you don't love me. I'd be like, come on, come on, Phoebe. Right? Come on. Um, and you can hear in our culture there's sort of a bias towards skepticism, towards unbelief. Um, it's in our language. Right? Uh, Christians have blind faith. People who are religious have blind faith, but I just have honest doubts. You guys have your faith thing, but I just sort of see the world as it is, and I make my decisions based on that, right? Heard this before? Sound familiar? Um, And I can understand where somebody is coming from there, but uh, Leslie Newbegin, one of my favorite authors, points out that there's, yes, there is such a thing as blind faith, and yes, there is such a thing as honest doubt, but he also says there's also something called blind doubt. There's blind faith, but there's also blind doubt. And then there's such a thing as honest faith. There are, there's blind doubt and there's honest faith. Well, what, do I mean by, what does he mean? What do I mean by blind doubt? Um, blind doubt is when you don't doubt your doubts. 
Like when you, when you put on God a level of scrutiny that you don't put on all the other things that you believe about your life and the way that you live. You don't uh, doubt your doubts. Because when we really examine them closely, all of our doubts are based in some way or another on some other belief that we're holding. Like, I doubt that that is true because of something else that I believe. And if we really dig deeper into a lot of those things, we really believe those things by faith at some level or another. This is what, if you were here a few weeks ago with the faculty panel discussion, this is what Chris Tucker, the philosophy guy, was kind of getting at in one of his little spiels uh, during Q&A. I'll give a few examples. So let's say that you're, you're somebody that says, I'm a rationalist. I believe in logic and reason. Anything that I can understand and interpret according to logic and what I consider reason. And by the way, I'm being a little bit simplistic for the sake of time. Like philosophy majors, let's get a cup of coffee for like once a week for a month uh, or more <laughs> and talk about this. We'll go to Chris Tucker's office. Um, but so, uh, forgive me if I'm a little simplistic here. Basically, you're saying, I, I believe, I, I'm a rationalist. I believe the things that are only that which is logical that I can reason out are true. Um, that sounds great. Like, that's my epistemology. That's how I know what I know, what is rational, what is reasonable. Well, we could just ask the question, how do you prove reason? How do you prove logic itself? How do you know that that is the system that you come to learn the truth through? Um, and it, immediately, I would have to say, well, I'm going to have to use reason and logic to do that. And all of a sudden, I'm in trouble because I'm using reason and logic to prove that reason and logic are true, which is circular reasoning, which is irrational. Does that make sense? I'm using the thing I'm saying is true in order to prove the thing I'm saying is true, which is circular reasoning, which is irrational. Um, Or you could say, okay, I'm not necessarily a rationalist, but I am, you know, another step away. I'm empiricist. If I can prove it scientifically, if I can prove it with evidence, with concrete things that I can see and taste and smell and touch, then that, that's all I will believe in. Well, then you would ask the question, like, well, how do you know that that's the only way to know what's true? How do you know that only that which is measurable is real? Um, can you prove empiricism empirically? What laboratory was that shown to be the principle through which we know all things? Where did that happen? So I, I can't prove it empirically. I can't prove empiricism empirically. Or let's, let's pick another one. Oh, this will be the last one. Uh, skepticism. Just the idea that a, a general agnosticism, I don't really know. Anything's true. Nobody can really know. I'll doubt everything, question everything. Uh, I would just ask, if that's, if that's kind of your view... Well, do you doubt that? Like you're saying, I'm going to doubt everything else, but do you doubt your own belief system? Do you doubt, are you skeptical about skepticism? Uh, Are you sure that doubting everything is the right way forward? Because you operate like you believe things. All of us do. Um, And what about, like if I'm a skeptic, what if, what if the, in the Bible, in Romans 1, where it says that God is just sort of evident to us in an intuitive way? that we just sort of naturally know him, that he's put himself on display. What if that is true, and I'm actively using my mind to suppress that truth? How would I know? How would you get there? What if that's the case? Do you actually know uh, that doubt is the way to truth? And so we, we could go on. It's already been too tedious. But um, for now, just what I want to get across is that 
we often act like belief in God or Christianity are this leap of faith. That's the guy, we're like the pastor guy with the Bible thing is on the high rope wire. Um, and it's an interesting idea, but I don't really want to leave my like safe and snuggly platform of rationalism and empiricism or even a general skepticism of just sort of the way things are and I just take it as it comes. I don't want to leave my platform to jump onto your wire. But what I want to suggest is that maybe you've already made the leap. It hasn't been a leap towards God, but it's been a leap towards something else. The thing that we think is the platform is actually just another wire that we can't really prove if we investigate it closely. Um, And so either you are omniscient, like you know everything, uh, or at some level you live by faith in something else. You have made a leap of faith. Um, And so the real question is not whether or not you're going to have faith, but the question is faith in what? Faith in what? Faith in who? Um, And what we're seeing here in this passage is not just a basic blind faith, but it's an honest faith. It's a faith that doesn't have all the answers, but turns those questions and those doubts and expresses them towards God. Um, Not away from him, and that is really the key. And that's why Paul can say later that Abraham did not waver in his faith. That though it was a faith full of doubt, it was an unwavering faith. Um, quickly, a little sidebar about faith. A lot of times we, um, we misrepresent how faith works accidentally. I think Christians do. Where we talk about how uh, it's not our good works that save us. It's faith that saves us. Which is true uh, in a manner of speaking. Um, but sometimes it, it sounds like there's something like really virtuous or meritorious about the faith itself, about having faith. It's like the one good work you need to do to please God is to have faith in him. Um, And uh, we are saved through faith. I'm not denying that. Theology nerds, I'm not denying that. But um, there is a sense in which it's not, we, we, we confuse it, it's not faith that saves you. According to the Bible, it's Jesus who saves you. It's God who saves you. It's not the purity or the essence or the merit of your faith. It's the thing that you have your faith in. Um, It's the one that you trust in. I'll I'll give you an example if that was unclear. Um, Let's say you and me, like it's spring break's coming up, and I've been told in songs that California knows how to party, and you've heard that too. And so you and me, we're going to get on a flight from Richmond to L.A. on Friday afternoon when classes are over. And we both board the plane, and I'm, like, terrified of flying. I hate it. Like, I'm nervous. I'm grabbing, like, I'm just the whole flight there to California. I'm white-knuckling it. I'm freaking out. I'm hyperventilating. I've got the, the doggy bag. And you're like, you're chilled out, you're relaxed, you're watching Netflix on your computer, you're ordering drinks, you're chatting it up with the steward, and he's like, you know, you guys are best friends by the end of the flight, and you're like, loving it. Which one of us gets to California? 
We both do, right? We both do. Because it's not the strength of my faith in the plane. It's the plane that gets me there. Um, and uh, some of us uh, have a, a white-knuckle faith in God. And we are freaking out. And we have all kinds of questions and all kinds of doubts. Others of you, you don't have those kinds of dark nights of the soul for whatever reason. You're just a person who's like, God loves me. I love God. Everything is good. You might enjoy the ride a little bit more, but the plane is what gets you there. Is your faith weak and trembling and afraid and full of doubts? If your faith is weak, Jesus is not. Jesus is not. He's a good Boeing 747. We don't have faith in faith. My faith is not in my faith. My faith is in Jesus, according to the Bible. Um, And on the flight of faith, you are free to ask your questions. You are free to express your doubts with God and with each other. And that's exactly what Abraham does here. And so it's really interesting. He has faith, and God credits that faith to him as righteousness. The plane is taken off and going. And then he immediately says, but how do I know? How does God answer? I look at verse 9 of chapter 15. And we're going to skip a few verses. But, uh, and God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, and he cut them in half and laid them each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down to the carcasses or vultures, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now skip forward to verse 17. The middle verses here, God predicts that, the, God, that his ancestors are going to be slaves in Egypt and gives some details on that. We're going to skip it for time. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of the animals. And on that day, the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, and then he lists the nations that live there in the next verse. So Abram says, I believe, but how do I know? And God says, go get a cow and a sheep and a goat, cut them in half, and then a torch in a pot. Pass through them. It's pretty self-explanatory. I think you understand um, God's answer. What? How do I know? Cut some animals in half. Um, Abram somehow seemed to know what was going on. So our third point, there's the, the, the leap of faith and the reality of doubt, but then finally the assurance of the gospel. Uh, and, and here's what I mean. Um, so here, here's what's going on here, because it's a little confusing. It was normal for Abraham, it's weird for us. Okay, so when a king would take over or make a contract with another neighboring king in this culture, and they would agree on the boundaries or who's going to do what for whom, they would make a covenant with each other. So they got a covenant. It's a binding promise, public binding promise between two people. And one of the ways that they would make that covenant is this. They would take a bunch of animals, and they would cut them in half, And they would lay the pieces on either side of a pathway. And the blood of the two animals would run into the middle. And then the two people, the king and the other king, or the king and the people he had conquered, they would walk through the blood of the animals to make their covenant. 
And what they were doing, what they were demonstrating, which Abraham picks up on immediately. God doesn't give him instructions. He just says, take the animals, and Abraham knows what to do. Is this. When, when you walk through together and you're making promises and agreements to each other, you're saying, if I break the covenant, if I break this promise, if I break what we're saying we're going to do with and for each other, may I become like these animals that I'm walking through. May I be ripped in two. May my blood be on the ground. And then the other person would walk through too. And so it's like, and if you break the covenant, may your blood be on the ground. That's what they did in that culture at that time. It seems weird to us. It's not nearly as weird as like the contracts you have to sign when you buy a house that lawyers make you do. It's like all the fine print and the little boxes you got checked. Um, weird to us, normal to them. So, but what's really interesting about this is this. Did you notice? So what, what happens in the covenant? You, you cut the animals in two and you both walk through. If I break it, may I be like these animals. If you break it, may you be like these animals. Do you notice what Abraham did? He went to sleep. God knocked him unconscious. And in this uh, smoking fire pot and flaming torch, which all through the Old Testament, the symbol for the presence of God was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke or cloud by day. The smoke and fire are representations of God's special presence in a place. And God says, Abraham, take a nap. I'm going to go through. Not you. If I break the covenant with you, Abraham, my blood's on the ground. And if you break the covenant, again, not you, but my blood's on the ground. May I be like these animals for both sides of the agreement. Um, he answers Abram's doubt by saying, how do I know? How do you know, Abram? You know because of me. I am making a promise so strong that even if you break your side of it, my blood will be spilled for you. I'm the starting point for how you know. Um, which is, to be fair, this is where belief in God feels like a leap of faith. It feels like a leap of faith. Uh, God, how do I know? And God says, trust me, I promise, on my own blood. No, wait. Like, isn't that the very circular reasoning I was talking about before? Like, rationalists will have to use reason proof reason, and empiricists have to, can't use empiricism to prove empiricism, and skeptics don't doubt their own presupposition. Isn't it the same circular reasoning? How do I know God? Trust God. God, how do I trust you? Trust me. How do I know you're real? Trust me. Um, it, it, uh, to be fair, it, it's, it's, it is similarly circular, but here's the difference. If God is real, if God is real, then that's exactly what we ought to expect. Here's why. Because if God is the creator and sustainer of all things, then what would we use? Like, what would he be answerable to? He would be the highest level of knowing. And again, this is kind of what Chris was getting at a couple weeks ago. If God is God, then of course he is the starting point. Of course he is the source. Because if God is the source of reason itself, God is the creator of the empirical world. So, um, 
he is the evidence. Uh, he creates the evidence in the first place. In him, we live and move and have our being. In him, all things hold together, as the Bible says. So here's what I mean. But here's why it's different. In other words, I can't be an empiricist without contradicting, without beginning by contradicting empiricism. I can't be a rationalist without beginning by contradicting the principles of rationalism. I can't be a skeptic without beginning by contradicting the principles of skepticism, but I can be a theist, a believer in God, without contradicting the rules of theism. That make sense? Tracking? Because if God is God, that's what I should expect. I should expect him to be the standard of knowing. If theism is true, then of course God's self-revelation, God's own word, God's self-commitment to us would be where I would start for knowledge. That is actually weirdly totally consistent and actually totally rational. It's a reasonable faith. It's what I should expect. Whereas in the other ones, I have to break my own rules in order to believe it. Now, here's here's the deal. I am not saying have blind faith. Just trust God without any evidence. Because, yes, there is evidence. There's tons of historical evidence. If you want to read about evidence for the, the resurrection of Jesus, go get N.T. Wright's giant book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, yes, there is reason. There are arguments. Uh, Chris Tucker, two weeks ago, mentioned this amazing book on Oxford University Press by Alvin Plantiga called Warranted Christian Belief. There's like thorough, in-depth, philosophical arguments for why it makes sense to believe in God. But what I am saying is that reason alone and evidence alone will never actually get us to the God of the Bible if he's real. Because all of those things would be me starting with me in my own mind and my own apprehension of the world around me in order to climb my ladder of reason up to him. And according to the God of the Bible, the only way that we can know him is if he comes to us. If he makes himself known to us. Jesus even said himself, he said, even if a man should rise from the dead, some of you will still not believe. Predicting his own resurrection, which the Bible claims. He's saying, like, look, you could see a dead man walk, and you could still possibly doubt. Because you could find another explanation. You could find another reason to think it's not true. In Abraham, it says, he believed God, and he believed him. Why? He believed him because The word of the Lord, verse 1, came to Abraham. He heard his word and he believed it. And second, he believed his covenant, my blood on the ground, not yours. And in Jesus, God has done both of those things for you and me. Like, well, what about Abraham got to be there? The New Testament says that, that Jesus is the word of God in human form. He's the word made flesh. The word became flesh and lived among us, it says in John chapter 1. And that promise, that covenant that he cut with Abram came true. If you break this covenant, my blood will be spilled. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. It's exactly what God, God made good on the covenant with Abram in Genesis 15 in the death of Jesus, his son. And he did that to keep that covenant so that he could, quote, as Paul puts it, to justify the ungodly, to take people who don't have righteousness, that through faith we might be made right like Abraham before God. Um, so I'll finish with this. I know it was very like kind of philosophically in the 
out here and there's lots of questions unanswered and we should drink lots of coffee and talk about it. But I would say this, if you're a believer, if you're like self-identifying as a Christian, um, don't keep your doubts a secret, either from God, because he already knows, <laughs> or from each other. Talk about them. Let's, let's get coffee and, and talk through them. Don't, I, I mean, it makes me so sad when I talk to somebody who comes to me as a junior or whatever. They've been at William & Mary and they've been like, you know, I've been having these huge doubts for years and I've never talked to anybody about it. So I went into a closet by myself alone and tried to figure it out. And I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. And this is the first conversation we've had and they've already decided to turn the back of unbelief and say, I've made up my mind. You don't have to do that. Like, let's, let's, let's engage. Let's talk about it. There's good, good stuff. And there may be really good answers. Um, and there may be some unanswered questions, but don't be surprised by that either. That's not a surprising thing. You're not the smartest person on planet Earth. You're not going to be able to answer every riddle. But there might be some good things. Bring your doubts to God. He's not afraid of them. And, and unwavering faith is a faith that asks doubting questions. Don't be afraid of that. I'm not going to be like, what's wrong with you? If we get coffee and you're like, I have some big questions. Um... But second, if you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, if you're exploring Christianity, you're considering it, or you're, you know, just whatever, your friend dragged you here tonight and you can't wait to leave, um, just know that you're not standing on a platform right now. You are on a high wire. Um, You are acting in faith. You have already made a leap of faith, but don't have blind doubt. Don't have blind doubt. Um, And... By the way, I can totally understand, if, especially if you grew up like apart from all this or whatever, be like, you know, I don't really know if I want to base my whole life on a 2,000-year-old book written by you know, a bunch of nomads and like, sheep herders. Like, I'm not sure that's where I want to go. I, like, I get that. I understand that. And I think most of your Christian friends get that. Um, but at the same time, Jesus is way too significant to just ignore He's way too big of a deal. And so blind doubt would be saying like, yes, like I don't really have a good solid answer for like my hopes and my longings and my sense of purpose and my sense of morality in the world and the sense of shame and guilt that I feel when I feel like I've broken some sort of moral code that exists outside of just my own self. And, um, you know, I don't really know how to make sense of just the splendor and beauty of life and of love and of joy and all the things that I experience when I look around at the beautiful world that's around me. And um, no other person in history has been more significant by any stretch of the imagination than this carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus, who has totally transformed the world over the last 2,000 years through his life and the claim of his resurrection. And no other religion has had more cross-cultural, multi-ethnic, global impact through all sorts of cultures and languages and people on the planet than Jesus and his followers. And there seems to be, like I'm told, there's like maybe there's this philosophical inner consistency to Christianity that other worldviews don't really have. And there's lots of historical evidence that he lived and was who he said he was, and even that he like did this ridiculous thing called rising from the dead and other claims of the Bible. But it's just not really worth looking into. Like, like you may doubt it. And you may investigate all these things, you may pray to God, and you may try and and understand it, and you might end up not being convinced, but you can't just casually dismiss it. Like, Jesus is too big, Christianity is too big for just a shrug of the shoulders, like, yeah, that's nice for blind faith people, like my goody-two-shoes friends who don't drink beer enough. Take it, like, it... 
look at it, talk about it, ask questions. Um, because what the Bible is claiming and what Jesus is claiming is that God is actually there and that he is knowable, that he is accessible, that he has come near to you, that he has worked through reason and doubt and evidence, and he has made you for himself, and he has shown himself to be faithful, and that maybe you might, with all your questions, step onto that plane, and you might fly to L.A. with him with all your nervousness and uncertainty, and I promise you he is faithful, and he will get you there, and he is worth it. Let me pray for us.